Welcome to Mindama, real conversations about what really matters. As a track cyclist, Anna Mears had a remarkable career. Anna holds the equal record for world championship wins with 11 titles to her name. She is also the first Australian to win medals in different events over four Olympics, including gold in both Athens and London. For Anna, another major career highlight came in 2016, when she was awarded the honour of being the flag bearer for the Australian team at the Rio Olympics. While the public has witnessed the many highlights of Anna's career, in her autobiography now, Anna shines a light on the challenges she experienced along the way. In 2007, Anna suffered a broken neck in a race fall, yet worked her way back to win a silver medal just seven months later at the Beijing Olympics. As she approached her final Olympics, Anna would have to contend with serious injury, a marriage breakdown, and the illness of her coach, Gary West, who was later diagnosed with motor neuron disease. While Anna's retirement in 2016 freed her from the relentless responsibilities of being a professional athlete, it also created many new challenges. In recent years, Anna has forged new pathways towards a life of purpose, balance, and joy. We hope you enjoy this wonderful conversation with the humble and indomitable Anna Mears. We acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the various lands on which this podcast is recorded. We acknowledge their deep and ongoing spiritual connection to the land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their ancestors, their elders and leaders, past, present and emerging. And in doing so, we acknowledge and honour the spirit of Makarata and the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Anna, thank you so much for joining us for the Mindama podcast. I'm so delighted to have you join us today. Uh, thanks for the invitation. So I have to ask, you've had the most remarkable career as an elite athlete. How did a girl who lived in outback Queensland, three hours from the nearest velodrome, ever get involved in track cycling? Well, firstly, thank you. Um, <laughs> it's, it's something to look back on a career in a holistic sense that I haven't really, I didn't really do until I retired. And it's taken a little bit of time for me to sink in what I have achieved. I know I've achieved a lot and I've achieved great things, but I think the enormity of it has taken some time to, for that penny to drop. But honestly, how we found track cycling, my sister Kerry and I, literally, literally we were just tuned into the 1994 Commonwealth Games on TV, like all Australians are. We're just drawn to those multi-sport competitions for, for cheering on the Aussies. Mm. And, um, and we saw Cathy Watt win gold for Australia on the velodrome. She was an endurance athlete, but I just, I have that picture in my mind so vividly because she had this really cool bike that was painted with the Aussie flag. And when she won, she carried the Aussie flag. And, oh. and I'd already done uh, BMX by that stage for up to five or six years. So I was very familiar with bikes, but I had no idea what track cycling was until I saw it on TV. So um, that's, that's where the spark came from. I love that. So yeah. it's a, a female athlete that inspired this Olympian. That's pretty Absolutely. impressive. Yeah, I love that. Um, so where do your parents fit in all of this? Because I imagine they must have been doing a lot of toing and froing and, and dropping you here and dropping you there. What kind of people are they? Are they they sound quite supportive? Yeah, look, they're, they're very supportive, but they're also they're, they're very driven, they're very strict, they're very dedicated people. Um, you know, they're just your know, standard blue-collar workers, which I think really resonates for me. You know, my father was a coal miner for, oh, I think, almost 32 years. Um, my mother was, 
she drove the bus for the coal miners. She was a local service station attendant. She, you know, delivered mail for the post office around town. She was a cleaner. Um, wow. You know, so really just hardworking people. So when we came to you know, be intrigued by this track cycling. We asked them if we could have a go. And the closest club was, like as you said, 300 kilometres from where we lived. And I was only 11 years of, of age at the time. My sister Kerry was only 12. And most parents would say to their kids, oh, well, we might just try something closer to home. But despite, you know, some of the challenges I think that we faced from where we grew up in, in regional um, or country Queensland, my parents were all about providing the opportunity um, mm. it wasn't easy. I mean, they, I remember they sat us down after the first time we tried track cycling and said, look, if you like this sport, it's going to take a lot for you, for mum and I to, mm. um, you know, provide you, you know, transport to and from, buy you bikes, all that sort of stuff. If, if you want to have a go, you really need to commit to it. And, and that's a pretty serious conversation to have with an 11 year old. Yes. Absolutely. Um, but I, I remember, yeah, I remember <laughs> it very vividly and, um, I've never forgotten it because I, I know, Mum and dad put in so much. I, I will never, never earn enough to repay them what they put in and, mm. and what I got out of my sport. But I know that on the occasions they sat trackside for races that Kerry and I attended, the pride paid yes. uh, overwhelmingly for what we saw on their faces. I think we're getting a little insight into where you ha- where you may have um, gotten a lot of that dedication and hard work, especially if your mum working all those different jobs and being dedicated yeah. to to you and your sister exploring these the sport and having that yeah. opportunity yeah yeah and it's that that old um adage you know you can't be what you can't see I had a really good um role model in in both my mum and dad but you know mum in particular because dad was obviously a 12-hour night shift permanent worker mm. I saw what it was to work hard I saw what it was to be dedicated I saw what it was not to quit mm. um and Mum never complained. She never complained. I mean, there were times where she had migraines, she had sore feet, sore back, sore knees. She just got up and she got on with the job. And, um, yeah, so I, I love my mum. I think she's an absolute gem. Yeah, she sounds like a really, yeah, inspiring, really inspiring woman. Yeah. Um, can I ask, track cycling is it has been a huge part of your life, but it's an incredibly tough sport so, and a very dangerous one at that. So you're literally riding a bike with no brakes, which is not, some people aren't aware of that. And your feet are strapped into these pedals and you're going around a track with a 45 degree bank turns. And then you're going as fast as 70 kilometers an hour, often elbow to elbow <laughs> with other competitors and many people would question you know for me when I first came across this sport was my husband Jamie who you've who you've met and he's a massive fan of yours and he adores cycling all types of cycling and when I learned there were no brakes I thought my god this is wild <laughs> how do you <laughs> how do you deal with the danger and the that element of it it's it's quite funny for people who aren't familiar with the bikes, the sound of having no brakes is mortifying. Uh, but when you're on the bike, you're surprised by how much control you actually have. And the difference also in these bikes from what most people will be familiar with, with mountain bikes and road bikes and, and general commute bikes, is that they also only have one gear and they're fixed wheels. So oh. there's no freewheeling ability. Um, and 
the gearing choice becomes really critical to your ability to accelerate from zero to 70 k's an hour. So um, when also you're travelling at those sorts of speeds and you have, like you said, the banking steeped at 45 degrees, that actually keeps you safe because you oh. need banking to help steer you around the bend. And for people like me, you just get addicted to the thrill of... Ah, uh, yes. ...that <laughs> bar close nature, like you said, elbow to elbow. Um, and you do start to, as you progress through from juniors to seniors to international competition, you do really start to know who has what skills and who doesn't and who to avoid in certain races, what wheels to follow, what ones to make sure that you steer clear of. So um, I, yeah, I spent so much of my life turning left that even when I tried cyclocross and mountain biking, the whole art of turning right and <laughs> my body weight the other way and having the, the in my mind forgetting that I can freewheel, yeah. um, you know, it, it takes a lot to adjust to. But when you're in it, it's normal. Yeah, that's incredible. It's a, it's a real testament to the brain and body too, I think, and, and your your skills. Yeah. Let's talk about Olympics because going into the Athens Olympics, which is there was only one spot available on the Australian team and the person that was standing in your way of getting it was actually your big sister, Carrie. Yeah, well, there, there were a number of women in contention for that spot, mm. but Carrie and I, we, we were the you know number one sprinters for Australia for some, some period. And in the first two Olympiads that we both tried for selection, um, mm. which Athens and Beijing, um, ultimately there was only one position available for a female sprinter. And when you start to comprehend just that piece of information, like can you imagine if we called our Australian swim team, you can take one woman to represent your country at the Olympic Games. It just, it doesn't seem fathomable. Yeah. Um, so Kerry and I, I think we dealt with it as best we could with what skills we had at the time. Um, but unfortunately, Kerry had to withdraw halfway through that um, qualification process as a result of having some pretty serious back injuries, which she sustained as a result of the training and, and the load that we're under at training. Mm. And I, I remember um, she came into my room at the AIS where I was staying at the time and she was just a broken woman, you know, just <laughs> to sit there and as a sister just see the, the gut-wrenching disappointment and heartache that she was experiencing because she knew her dream was was now gone was was just really hard um because at the same time the competitor in me was going well there's one person one, one person less I yeah. have to worry about yeah um, but first and foremost I had I had to be her sister did it motivate you too though because now you may be you're not just representing yourself, but maybe you were in it for her as well. And given what she was going through, I mean, so much emotion in that situation. Oh, yeah. There's always emotion. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't know that it, it made it more profound because mm. I always was very aware of my, my familial contributions. And, and I have two older siblings as well. It's not just Carrie and I, it's um, my big sister, Tracy, my big brother, Scott, which many people don't know because they're very shy um, when it comes to having to do interviews and, and put themselves out there publicly. But, you know, when you consider how expensive this sport is and the money that mum and dad contributed to Carrie and I to partake, Tracy and Scott, you know, mum and dad offered always to support them financially in the same capacity, but they both said, no, Anna and Kerry need it more. Wow. Um, 
Yeah, so I have always been aware of all of my family's contribution to my career and that's why um, any time that I lost, I wore defeat really, really heavily um, Mm -hmm. because I knew how many people put into the opportunities that I was given and when I won, I gave every everyone that I possibly could the opportunity to thank them. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. You know, I think it's wonderful, though, that you're so, you know, aware of how you, all of your family, including your quieter siblings, have supported you over the years. But you were also working a lot in the lead up to the Olympics, weren't you? You worked as a bank teller. And yeah. not many people may know this unless they're reading your book. So like you, you worked in a tuck shop serving hot chips. Everyone loves hot chips. And so they, you, you're doing all these jobs to get to the Olympics. And then in just a few weeks, you're standing on the podium. You got gold around your neck. You're literally the fastest woman on two wheels ever at that point. So you've, you've won the 500 meter time trial. How do you think those experiences are not just what was going on with your family supporting you and the sacrifices your your parents had made all, all through the years, but you actually working all those jobs to get to the Olympics? Yeah, it's um, I think it's something that most people perceive incorrectly, that not just to get to the Olympic Games and become Olympic champion, but once you're there, they think you're rich. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's not the case. You know, it's in our... And here in Australia, we're very spoiled for choice when it comes to sport. And as a result of that, it's hugely competitive to get support corporately as a result, not just for sporting organisations, but individuals within those sports. And we're not just competing with Olympic sports, we're competing with big domestic codes like AFL, netball, cricket Mm. uh, as well. So, yeah, I was a bank teller from when I left school. I did, um, you know, I had two days a week off where I relieved around Adelaide while I was here for my um, AIS scholarship. My sister Kerry got me um, a nighttime shift at the hockey and soccer stadiums um, in the canteen because that was work we were familiar with after my family bought a chook shop and we ran it for seven years to pay for our sport and opportunity. And I went back to work when I got home from winning an Olympic gold medal and world record mm. Just because you win gold for Australia doesn't mean you don't, that you deserve um, a free ride after that. And we had a hugely successful, it was one of our most successful teams for Australia mm. at the Olympic Games. We won um, 20 gold medals. So in some ways, I think my performance was maybe lost in the massive success of that team. At that time. And at that time, we also had challenges within cycling as well, where we had drug drug issues. Mm. Um, and many corporate sponsors didn't want to be associated with the potential risk that came with that. So um, the thing is, I was very okay not to get financial reward out of the first Olympic Games that I went to because I didn't do it for the money. Um, it would have been nice. It would have taken a hell of a lot of stress off the plate. Um, but I understood that I wasn't, you know, trying to find a cure for cancer. I wasn't a neural neural brain surgeon. I rode a bike. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so there were these remarkable people in our communities that go unrecognised and, you know, in so many ways I think our sports stars have huge profiles over those people, you know, who can make such such a big impact on Mm. on our society going forward. So I I understood that relationship. Mm. I was also very grateful opportunities that I did have in a sport that was supported by the government financially Mm. Um, 
And I understood that that money could easily be relocated to aged care, healthcare, infrastructure, education, all those sorts of things. So I was always very grateful for what I did have. I wasn't bitching about what I didn't get, so to speak. It sounds um, like you, you kind of really kept things in perspective. Yeah, and my family yeah. helped me do that. Yeah. And I remember in Athens after I won gold, um, yeah. I went back to the village because I had this little tiny package um, from my dad, which he had given me um, just before I left Rockhampton to go to Athens. And even though my dad gave it to me, I'm pretty sure that my mum organised it, my mum wrapped it, and my dad gets all the credit. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> but you know, that little gift, which I thought might have been, you know, sapphire and diamond earrings or nice perfume or something like that, was just was just a small embroidered cloth um, that simply stated, I'm a, I'm a coal country kid and I'm proud to be a coal miner's daughter. Oh. And to me, it struck my heart because it kept me grounded to the fact that no matter where I went or what heights I might achieve, I'm always to remember who, who I am, where I came from and the people that helped me. And I think moments like that have really helped to keep me, you know, pretty grounded in a way where really I could have, you know, head wobbled my way. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. It sounds like your folks... Um, yeah, that you're clearly that gift just really probably brought home the truth of who they are as well, and all the lessons they've shared with you over the years. I'd, I'd my love to. My mum did get me some diamond and sapphire. It, oh, fabulous! <laughs> <laughs> Best of both worlds. Um, <laughs> I have to ask you now about the time trial again, right? So later, it was decided after that Olympics that the women's 500 meter time trial will be taken out to make way for BMX. Yet the men's time trial remained. How do you deal with a situation like that? It's so unfair. I mean, the sexism, you know, let's just call it what it is, 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 is tremendous. And, and, and yet it's completely outside your sphere of influence. Yeah, it was to say I was angry and disappointed is an understatement. Um, There was a lot of discussion around, the cycling nations, because we had to put to the UCI what events would be pulled from the Olympic calendar um, because the IOC would not add two new cycling medals to track, road and mountain bike to incorporate BMX. We had to, across those fields, pull out two to offer it to BMX. So it was agreed from what I understood in those discussions that two men's events would would go because at that stage, there was such an inequality between the men's and women's events. It wasn't funny. And then when the decision was made that the track time trials would be pulled, what that meant for Beijing was it would be a seven to three event ratio men to women. And if you were a sprint female, you were down to one event. Now, I I totally understand and respect that there are many athletes, particularly in athletics, um, who have one event. So I certainly appreciate the cutthroat nature of the of getting it right on the day as a result of that. But the thing that bit me most was that in the modern day that we were in, we still didn't have equal opportunity to our male, male counterparts. And also at this time, we didn't have equal prize money either. Mm. Um, so for me, the time trial being my pet event, where I had great success in Athens, went, which left me with the individual sprint. Now, I wasn't too shabby at the individual sprint, but it wasn't my my best event. Mm. So I really had to work at um, becoming better um, in that event in order to be, be as competitive as possible. All the women had to. 
That being said, once Beijing had been run, the IOC realised the stark inequality of events and pretty much said to the cycling, look, you've got to choose five, it has to be five and five, five for men and five for women because they weren't going to add events to our calendar. Um, and it was in only in 2012 that, that we got equal event opportunity. Wow. Isn't that unreal? That's <laughs> unreal. But I think that, I mean, the more it seems like the more, you know, w- women athletes are starting to speak up more and more about this and particularly uh, particularly with prize money as well. And it's, yeah, yeah which is so important. It is. So, it is. Mm. The effort is worth the same reward. Absolutely. Um, my world championship gold medal was worth less than a, than a men's bronze. I'm really proud and happy that in my time in my sport, I saw that equal um, mm. through. We got equal prize money in 2009 and equal events at the Olympic level in 2012. I'm grateful for the women in the generations before me who had far less mm. yeah. in order to open the pathway and the doors that I got to walk through and I'm really proud to see now the women who have followed me in the generations after mm. will have more opportunity than I ever had mm. um, and, and I'm really proud of that. Yeah, that's wonderful. So, Anna, I'm going to set the scene here for our listeners for my next question and you know and, and I want my listeners to understand that you actually had to pivot. So, you've just mentioned this, this time trail's gone, you have now have to learn how to race for a different type of race. So you're seven months out from the next Olympics. You're in the United States competing in a Kieran event. And for our listeners who are not familiar with this term, this is a race that has six competitors, often involves quite a bit of argy-bargy, as you mentioned earlier. And each cyclist tries to maneuver themselves into position. And before the race, your coach advises you to just stay out of trouble. And what <laughs> So what happened, Anna? It's... Um, well, look, I took the advice and I stayed out of trouble as long as possible. Yeah. Yeah, like you said, I was in Los Angeles at the third of five qualification races for Beijing. There was four World Cups, one World Championship. So I was at round three. The Kirin, whilst not an Olympic event, was a World Championship event. So I wanted and needed to race in order to qualify myself for the world titles. Mm. I had made the final. And my coach came to me and said, look, we're, we're seven months out from the Olympics. The last thing we need are any accidents or any injuries because I was the leading um, contender for Beijing in Australia. And um, he said, if the girls get rough, which is notoriously common in a Karen, as he said, just go to the back, give yourself plenty of room and make as late and fast move around the outside. And that's exactly how the race panned out. However, with 250 metres to go or one lap on the velodrome, when I made my move, that's when the script completely went off tangent. <laughs> mm. um, there was movement and, you know, shoulder barging in front of me. Three, the girls were three wide across the track. And, again, on a bike that has fixed wheel uh, with no brakes, reaction time is really, really critical. However, when you're travelling at 65Ks now, that reaction window is very, very small. Mm. And... I ended up clipping the wheel of an opponent as I tried to make my move around the outside, which is, an, is it, it's honestly a common incident in, in racing almost at every international tournament. Um, but generally we roll when we hit the deck. Unfortunately for me, it happened so fast in the middle of the banking, um, I didn't even have time to, to put my hands out to, 
to brace for the impact. And um, I don't recall a lot of what happened after I hit that wheel. Um, what I do remember is the moment I hit the track, um, feeling instantly nauseous, mm. like um, like I would you know, had the biggest night <laughs> the night before. Um, and then I remember a blur of colour flashing across my my face, which ultimately was was the signage of the track as I as I slid. Oh. And um, and then I was was unconscious. I, I woke up on the on the duckboard screaming to first responders and my coach who was there, my neck, my neck, my neck. Oh. And I was out again. And um, and then as they rolled me over onto the stretcher, someone had placed their hand on a section of my leg that had um, severe burns as a result of sliding against the wood at 65 k's an hour, and it kind of woke me up out of being um, being knocked out. And I just <laughs> just remember screaming, "Let go of my leg!" Oh my gosh! Wow. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I was I was strapped up and put into a brace as a precaution, and and taken off to the um, little company of Mary Hospital in LA. My sister accompanied me in the back of the ambulance, as did a, a member of staff, and. And we were all just giggling and laughing, mainly because I was on the green whistle and those things are just... <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> but yeah, predominantly, my thought was this is a little bit much. I know I'm going to need a check over from head to toe, but come on, like I'll, I'll be fine. And I wasn't. Mm. And so I know in, you, you share in your book too that what was found in hospital that you were, you were just two millimetres from potential quadriplegia or death even that yeah. must have been just when when the when the truth of the matter started to hit you I mean that must have been so confronting uh, yeah it's and, honestly it hit me in a way that I felt like I was winded mm -hmm. um and I actually learned that information through overhearing a conversation between the medical staff and my coach so it wasn't a, a direct conversation to me and I understand why because I was instantly struck by fear when I learned that, you know, because I, I fractured at the C2 level, which is the second down from the skull. Mm -hmm. And um, I know many people on this um, podcast would understand that lung attachments go through the C2 level. So I was two millimetres from a clean break. Um, I was extremely fortunate. Um, and the comment from the from the doctor was, God has other plans for this woman. Now I'm not a religious person, but I was I was just like, gosh, I hope so. <laughs> yeah, of course, my God. And so, what happened next, Anna? So you were were you tr was it um, organised for you to get back to Australia and to go into recovery? What unfolded in that in those? Yeah, so I spent stage? I spent seven days in hospital in America. Um, my team flew home without me, and I was um, left with a member of staff called Bertie May who cared for me while I was in hospital. Um, I went through a series of um, PT uh, work to ensure that I would be capable of flying home. Um, I had to prove that I would be okay to do so in that I needed a first-class flight, I needed a number of DVT injections, nausea medications, um, all sorts of things just to, you know, get mm. the okay sign off to be on the plane. I needed an ambulance to take me to the airport so I couldn't walk. Um, you know, I needed guidance and support through the airport on the plane when I got home. So it was quite a rigmarole of organisation that was required. And I remember there's so much that I remember. I remember when I got to the hospital, I first wasn't treated because I wasn't an American citizen. I didn't have health insurance. Oh, wow. And all of my medication, all my 
health forms and insurance forms were with my coach who didn't come with me to the hospital. Um, so my, my friend put down a $1,000 deposit so that they would actually start treatment. Glad we had insurance because by the time we got home, we had a $52,000 US bill just to, to get myself home so I could be in the care of my own medical team. Yes, wow. And, um, you know, I, I remember before my coach left, I, I said to him, I'll, I'll still be right for Beijing. And, um, and he just kind of patted my hand and he said, don't worry about that for now. But I'm glad that he didn't disregard it because by the time I got home, he and my team had sat down and put together a whole new path of strategy, so to speak, on how to make Beijing possible for me. Um, they weren't going to stop the games or shift the start line of the Olympics to allow recovery for my accident. I had to walk a completely different path to make that goal happen. So it started simply by getting back on the bike. Mm. <laughs> um, I got on 10 days after my fall. Oh, my gosh. I was just propped up on this, you know, portable clothes rack at home on my indoor ergo, ergo because, well, I didn't realise and my team didn't realise when you break your neck is, is how heavy your head is. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I, I couldn't even lean on the handlebars and support the weight of my own head. So we had to be very creative around what ways I could be active again. Um, we had to be very astute as to not pushing the boundaries too hard mm. going forward to try and, you know, get myself physically active again. Um, but the timelines were tight. Um, I had a fitness test to perform in four and a half months after my fall to um, prove I'd be fit enough to go. I had 10 weeks minimum in the neck brace. I had seven months to heal enough to be competitive if I was going to get to Beijing. Um, and, you know, things were, you know, changed on the day a lot of the time mm. um, as to how I pulled up, what I was capable of doing. So I'm very fortunate to have had a wonderful team around me. And how did you, because I mean, there's so much going on, your body is in a trauma and it's trying to recover. And yet during that process, you're already mentally starting to switch into gear. Did, were there any, were there any times where you were, you were going to a space of doubt or how did you cope with that? I, I can imagine. I mean, my God, this is just phenomenal. You're already, you're already recommitting to, to make that, that fitness that fitness test so you can go to the Olympics? When something is taken from you, mm. you realise pretty quickly how much you want it or not. Mm. And I think my accident showed me maybe how much I didn't appreciate what I was doing and how much I loved it. I learned a whole new gratitude and appreciation for what I was doing, for the people that I was working with, what I wanted, why I wanted it. And I think my youth and naivety helped, to be honest. Mm. Um, I know had I suffered, would I suffer that injury today? Whilst I have the skills to cope with it, I would handle it very, very differently. Very, very differently. It sounds like you were drawing on the support and, and there was part of you that was really anchoring into that sense of purpose in a new way, which is really interesting because a lot of the research, even in mental health, highlights that that sense of purpose really guides us through the roughest of times like it yeah yeah and, it's, and when it comes to purpose and value and what it is you're doing it's really individual yeah because um, everyone has an opinion about what you should and shouldn't do and the hard part about that is it, it just makes you question your own inner voice mm. and for me I 
never questioned my passion. I had been at the Olympics four years earlier. I had won gold and bronze. I knew what that felt like. I knew that I wanted that again. And even though I had that passion and I had that direction, I had that understanding, my motivation and moments of doubt didn't just happen daily. It was four or five times a day. It was exhausting. And if I didn't have that passion, I can guarantee you I would have pulled the pin. Mm, which is, I mean, understandable too, you know, given every, any, everything that you've been through. Uh, you know, on that note, there seems to be a profound amount of perfectionism in elite sport. And while that sometimes is seen as a strength to kind of really anchor into the passion and to be really driven and goal-directed and goal-oriented, there's also kind of a dark side to that perfectionism. And ha- so how did the inner critic start to emerge for you in in different ways um, beyond your recovery as well, what has helped you to manage it? I've had some big rivalries in my time. Mm. There's no rival bigger than myself. <laughs> <laughs> no one who can critique me, judge me harsher than I can. Mm. And given my experience with psychology as a result of my sport, I have learned it's really important how we speak to and of ourselves Mm. um, because of that perfectionist nature and that analytical nature that's required for success in sport, particularly in individual sport, and the pressures and expectations that come with that Mm. um, when successful. Um, For me, at the start of my career, I loved trying to win. Mm -hmm. As I progressed through my career, I spent 16 years in the elite senior level Winning it in the public and media eye, for me, became nothing short of gold medals. Mm. And I started to fear what would happen if I didn't win. So my psychology shifted quite significantly the more success that I I gained. And I started to have to learn how how to cope with that and shift it back to keep the joy in the attempt of winning. Mm. And in doing that, I stopped sharing my goals publicly And that gave me control over deeming what was successful for myself. Mm. Um, The only other person who was involved in that was my coaches. That, I think, was a big saving grace um, Mm. to be honest. That's wonderful. I mean, did you, I know you worked with sports psychologists as well. So do you think that that provides another, given what you've shared, like another layer of wholeness to you as a not so you not just being an athlete but seeing yourself beyond an athlete too in at times in those moments I I think what it does is it it upskills me um Mm. you know I've worked with sports psychs and clinical psychs because I'm open-minded to the fact that we have a tendency to you know love to look out for a coach who can help us physically improve Mm. there's this stigma around hiring someone who in the mental arena who can help us mentally and emotionally improve and to me the two go hand in hand if you want to be successful at anything no matter what your profession is Mm -hmm. Um, and so I kind of looked at my psychologists as coaches mentally could help me understand my shortfalls and and help me improve to be better Mm -hmm. and so it's how you look at and how society is looking at that Um, I think we need a shift in Mm -hmm. in our um, stereotype of of Um, mental health care workers and the impact that they can have. 
Oh, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, I think one of my favorite quotes from your book really tackles the myth about resilience and mental toughness and, and uh, how it's often associated with being unemotional. And you write, I'm going to share a quote here. You write in your book, emotion is such a huge part of our sport. And if a cyclist can't deal with it, he or she can't perform. So on that note, I guess it's really speaking just to what you were sharing there, how you're dealing with your emotions rather than fighting with them and working with them. So do you have any tips in terms of what you have found worked for you in terms of working with your emotions? Yeah, mm. I mean, first, you've got to understand what your response is to certain situations. Mm. And it takes great courage to look in the mirror at that level. I'm a really emotional person now. I don't mean that in the sense that I, I break down and, and cry all the time. I get angry. I get frustrated. I get annoyed. I get irritated. I show joy immensely. I love to celebrate. All the all the, the range that comes with expression of what you're feeling as a result of an experience or a moment, that's emotion. Hmm. Emotion can help you execute as an athlete. It can give you extra energy, the adrenaline, the nerves, all those sorts of things. But it can also, because it's not often felt at the levels that we feel in the high performance area, especially at the Olympic Games, it can cause the adverse reaction if you're not prepared for it or aware of how you respond. And in you know, work environments in particular, understanding how you and others respond to certain situations helps with the ability to communicate with each other. You know, for me, the turmoil within me was just so overwhelming that my sport, sports site just tried to give me a different perspective, perspective of looking at it so that I had control of that. Mm. On the start line, I used to just try and picture myself like I was in the satellite roaming around Earth Mm-hmm. And I was hovering over a cyclone or a <laughs> hurricane. And with, when you're on the ground, the power of those are immense. Mm. When you're above it, you can see holistically and you are safe from it. You, you have a very different perspective of what that power is and, and what to do with it. Mm. And, um, and so I started to look at all that that came with race day, like a little cyclone in my chest. Mm. Uh, and just I knew that to to utilise that to my best ability, I had to, one, firstly breathe <laughs> because often we forget when we feel those emotions, pressures and expectations is the first thing that shortens up is our, our, is our breath. So true, yeah. And, um, and the breath then helps us remain present as opposed mm-hmm. to being overwhelmed by what it is we're feeling in the, in the environment that we're at. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I could sit here and talk for hours. I don't... I'm just regurgitating all the things that I've learned. Yeah, no, I think that's wonderful. And it certainly reflects a lot of the strategies that we have in our program in Mind Dharma as well. But And I'm going to come back to that breathing in a moment. But I want to go back into the cycling for a moment as well, like into your most famous victory, which came at the London Olympics in the sprint. And I'm going to set the scene again for our listeners because it's such a moment. And you're up against the hometown hero and your great rival, Victoria. Victoria Pendleton. Years of intense training have gone into this meet and incredible hype has surrounded the event. And as Victoria walks out to mount her bike, a deafening cheer fills the velodrome. Can you describe the atmosphere and what that was like for you and how you'd prepared again psychologically for this moment? It's funny, like I, hearing you describe it, 
slots me back into that moment. Like wow. I put a DVD in my head and I feel, I feel what I felt. <laughs> <laughs> in preparation for that, I had the privilege of, of having a great mentor, which we had a few in the Australian Olympic team at that time, but the cycling allocated mentor was, was John Eels, who was a great Australian captain um, for the Wallabies. And he came to our training camp in Montecchiari and my sports coach at the time, Nicholas Flager, he said, if you want to talk to someone who knows how to handle a hostile crowd, Nick was a Kiwi. Um, he said, you need to talk to this guy because he's faced a haka, he's faced, you know, mm. all the um, slander of, of an emotional crowd, home crowd in New Zealand um, and come out on top. So if you're going to go in and face Vicky in front of a home crowd, this is, this is a guy you can really tap into. So... I asked John for a meeting and he happily gave me his time and I asked him, you know, if he could give me any tips around how to handle the home ground advantage that I didn't have. Now, one of the things that I kind of do psychologically when I compete is wherever I am on the track, if there's noise, why can't that be for me? It doesn't matter if it's for my opponent because we're both in the same vicinity. So I had a really good way of, of flipping the hometown crowd advantage in that sense, but in terms of the pressure and expectation of being that outsider in such a high-profile event uh, in a rivalry that was huge, um, I needed I needed some help. And he shared with me an experience about when um, the team young team that he captained faced the Haka um, from the Kiwis, and they would just get overrun in the first half. Mm. And it would take the, the halftime huddle in the, in the rooms for the coach to rip into them enough for them to try and, you know, claw it back in the second half. What happened was John realised that they'd lost control before they even started the game in that the Kiwis were using that as part of their process mm-hmm. um, and their, their ability to get them ready for the game. And so John started to get the team to face the hucker in the tracksuits, which meant they took control of when they re-entered the field because they had to leave the field you know, take off their suits, gave them an opportunity to bring emotions back into check in the, in the huddle and then go back into the game when they were ready. So we took that and we applied that to Vicky in London and we thought, look, she's going to have the hometown advantage. Absolutely. The crowd is going to be on her side. Let's give it to her. So we always let her go on the track first. So she was she was the one hit by the wall of noise mm. by her hometown home, um, crowd. And what I did is I just stayed on the bottom of the track, talking dot points of my strategy with my coach. So I wasn't, I was aware, but I wasn't um, the front face of that wall. And we waited and we just sat there talking until the pitch of the crowd dropped because we knew then that their focus wasn't on their girl. Um, it was on me, which meant I was then comfortable to take myself into that competition. And all that time she had to sit on the start line waiting for me. So the game starts long before the whistle's blown. <laughs> oh, my God, doesn't it? It's so psychological. I really love it. And I, I love this part that, you know, unless you're a cycling fan, not many people would be aware of this. But And, and I wasn't either. But I, I love the strategy that you also developed to win this race, which is termed track standing. And it's just the most phenomenal 
thing to have up your sleeve for so many years and have the patience to not bringing it out. So can you just share a little about what this actually is and the amount of strength and time and energy that goes into developing this skill? (laughs) Well, we talked about emotion earlier and emotion is great for the execution of a strategy, but when you're trying to create a strategy, emotion can cloud your ability to firstly see the information Mm. in its whole sense to give you the best chance to create that strategy in the first place to execute it. And we realised that the rivalry I had with Victoria Pendleton brought a lot of emotion. And in understanding that, my team decided to analyse Vicky, break her down to statistical data so that they could help me remove the emotion to see the information I needed to buy into the strategy we were trying to create to be successful in London. And we recognised through that process of analysis that Victoria Pendleton was most successful when her opponents were in front of her in a sprint match Mm -hmm. and the success rate when she was in the front position dropped significantly. So like the rest of the world, we were trying to beat Vicky at her best game and we realised we didn't have to do that. We just had to work out how to manoeuvre her from her most practised and most successful position into her least practiced and least successful position to give me the best chance to then upskill myself to beat her in that um, strategy. Mm -hmm. And the basis around this was simply Vicky wasn't going to get worse. Mm -hmm. I had to be the one to make the changes to Mm -hmm. get better. And as a result of that, we tested this out. Um, The track stand is a skill that anyone can use if they so choose. It's just not often used. Mm. And we tested this 18 months before the Olympic Games of the World Titles. I met Vicky in the semi-final. We were one apiece. Mm. It's a best of three matchup in the sprint. So in the third race, I'm on the front and my coach says to me, have a go. See if she can perform the track stand. If she can't, then you'll be back in the back position and you'll have the advantage of the race. As it would turn out, she couldn't perform this skill. and. Wow first time in six years I believe that she was not world sprint champion that I would be Mm. and we realized firstly they're aware now her team is aware that we found a scratch in her armor not a chink just a scratch in her armor and they had the opportunity to counteract that but what we did was we banked on predictability and people buying into predictability so we then started to shelve that skill of the track stand we didn't use it again domestically or internationally until we met in the final in london so we showed everyone plan b c d e f j h i k (laughs) in case i couldn't pull off plan a which i was actually practicing behind closed doors every day oh my gosh it's so it's like a game of chess this is intense So then you fast forward to the london final and then the first race victoria draws the front so automatically she has to lead but I lose the race by one one thousandth of a second. And as a result of a physical collision 30 metres before the finish line, the commissaires deemed had that collision not have happened, momentum would have carried me forward for that round win. Mm. So they relegated the hometown girl at the London Olympic Games and gave me the first round win, which obviously was met by 6,000 boos. Mm. 20 minutes later, we're up for the second race and positions automatically reverse. I'm now in the front position. Pendleton, I believe, is expecting a completely different race, one that she has seen me execute against her and others 
the last 18 months, but this was when I decided for the first time in that period I was going to do something completely different. And um, I didn't execute it perfectly. I just executed it better than she did. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? There's something powerful about that too. It's just being able to do it well versus perfect, isn't it? And I want to share something that you've written in your book too about what you've noticed when you watch the video of this win, when you when you watch this whole meet now, years later, and you share watching the video of the final today, I'm impressed at how calm I look. And then I notice my breathing, big, long, deep breaths. I remember those breaths. They kept me in the present. And I really love this quote, Anna, because it's so poignant and powerful, and it really speaks to the essence of mindfulness in many mm-hmm. ways. And I'm just wondering how that practice has stayed with you throughout your life as well, from, from the track and then off and off the track. Yeah, absolutely. Um I, I recognise the power of breath. I've done a lot of work on mindfulness. I've done a, a lot of work on myself mentally and emotionally. Um, and it helps me quieten the self-critic, which is required as an athlete but is a pain in the ass really for life outside of sport. <laughs> mm, mm. Um, breath became hugely important when I gave birth to my baby girl um, 13 months ago. Yeah. Um, fear of the unknown of what I was going through, what was going to happen. Breath kept me in the moment and just checking off the boxes of what I had to do then and there. Um, and it made the moment of that world, which otherwise would have felt this big and overwhelming, feel like I've got this type mm. thing. And it, it kept me, um, as I said in the, in the book, present in an environment that was as abnormal as they come. The Olympic Games environment is not normal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It looks like the wildest party in the world in some ways, yeah. doesn't it? From, from, from just the outside looking in. Yeah. So much, much happening. So as you're approaching your final Olympics in 2016 and you had, you know, not many people would have been aware of this at the time, but you had many difficult challenges emerging in your life. Your your marriage was um, ending and you mm-hmm. you'd also suffered this career-threatening injury to your back, um, which was not only extremely painful, but you couldn't train at the, at the same level as you used to have been doing. And so you knew it was also going to be hard to compete on that level. And here's the other side to this. You'd also achieved so much in your career to this point as well, you know, that in the world of cycling, it would seem, you know, you, 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 you're there. So what motivated you to keep going at that point? Mm, that's a great question. And the motivations changed as each situation rolled in. After London, I believed I was capable of recommitting another four years and, striving to be successful again in Rio. And by success, I mean, you know, winning winning those gold medals. Mm-hmm. Two years after London, my, my marriage came to an end and I spent two years going through divorce. I got my official letter of divorce a week before I carried the flag for Australia in Rio. Wow. Um, so I go from a moment of such personal failure, it felt, to professional success. It was utterly confusing to be in those two spaces at the same time. I was emotionally and mentally hurting um, as a result of my marriage breakdown. I took a huge hit in my confidence, my self-esteem and my self-belief, which when you walk into a professional environment, 
you desperately need those elements. <laughs> mm. And I really bluffed my way through a lot of the success that I had. And I, and I say bluffed in a light sense in that I think I really fell back on autopilot mode. And autopilot mode was all the work and preparation I had previously done psychologically and the team who backed me in through that period um, who believed in me more than I believed in myself at that time. Mm. And in that four-year period, I surprised myself on so many occasions. But because I chose to stay committed, I just I don't like to quit, mm. um, even though I tried to quit twice and my coach and my manager stopped me. The thing that kept me going was, to me, Rio was the finish line. Mm. And I really just couldn't bring myself to, to move that forward. So I just, I struggled and I battled and I feel like I clawed my way um, to Rio. Um, mm. At the time, I felt like the one bronze medal I won there was a failure um, because people didn't know all the personal challenges I had in that four-year window. And there was this expectation that the Olympic champion from London could back up and do the same thing. I was carrying the flag for Australia. Mm. I had this huge momentum of profile and support, but they didn't realise personally I was broken. Yeah. And pretty much I was just patched together as best as I could, which meant by the time I did retire after Rio, I had to go back and do so much work on myself to deal with the loss of so many things, including a marriage, physical injury, the loss of career, the loss of team, the loss of identity that comes with that. Um, my coach, whom I'd worked with for 10 years, was diagnosed with MND. Mm -hmm. He passed away a year after Rio. So the loss and grief levels that I went through in that probably final two to three year period of my career in the following two to three years after mm -hmm. retirement was too much for me and I very much struggled with it. I was asked on so many occasions to write a book after Rio. I knew I wasn't in the space to write a piece that I was proud of and I, I asked them to give me some time because I, I knew I would have more to contribute than just mm, the sport. When of I course. Yeah. And um, in 2018 when I, I felt like I was in a space that I could offer something, I started to re-engage and a lot all of those companies said, look, you're no longer relevant, too much time has passed. Oh. My Which gosh. I found surprising. So yeah. I went to my friend Steve War um, and asked him, I sent him my concept, which I had worked with Reese Homfrey. I said, is there anyone that you know who might be interested to help me in publishing this book? Because I know through the speaking that I have done, this is not a standard autobiography, sports autobiography. This is really based around, which is why it's called now, yes. the perspective of now, what I went through, what I learned and how it helped me and how that's applicable to other people. And um, I paid for half the book to be published and the response has been overwhelmingly positive because people often tune in every four years. Yeah. They don't know what, what's happened in the four years in between. And I think what I think I'm proud of most about this book is it, it takes me off that shelf or pedestal of being a great sports person and just holds in a nutshell that I'm too human. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, you, and you're so um, wholehearted and authentic and honest. And, and I think it really comes across. And that's why it is a, a powerful piece of writing. 
I'd just like to ask too, as you were starting to reconstruct your life, like physically too, like your your body had been through so much after that last Olympics and you don't have to train the same way. You can sleep in a bit, you can enjoy yourself. What was it like to re-engage in life and and do things that you really want to do for you outside of achieving? What was that process like for you? Uh, it was up and down like anything. <laughs> mm, yeah. Uh, change brings those challenges of, of up and down. Um, it was scary because mm. I had to quell again that self-critic and that high self-analytical person that I am whenever I tried something new to understand that I wasn't going to be the master. I had to start right at the bottom and learn my way to, to work up again. And I was really crippled by this perception that I had that people expected me to be successful in every avenue as as be as successful as I had been in my sporting career. And that in itself stopped me from trying new things, so mm. to speak, because I was so scared of the perception of what I should do and how I should do it. Mm. And it was my partner, Nick, who just simply said to me, shelve every person, all <laughs> of every person, and just write down on a piece of paper what you'd like to try and why. And the first thing that came up was obviously, you know, family. Um, and I knew that with the loss of my marriage and where I was at with my age, that, that may not happen. So I looked into adoption, which was non-existent for a single person in this country. And then I looked into foster care and I became a foster parent. So I spent 18 months doing that. And I, I found myself thoroughly smacked with passion to make an impact. Like I've, I've not been struck by anything like mm. that in my, my life as much as my career as I have of that because the challenge was as great even though it was completely different. Mm. And the next one was art. Um, when I was a kid in high school, I loved art. I wanted to be an art teacher. I started that process. I became oh, wow. in, involved in university um, for a year until I made my first Olympic team and I kind of shelved that because I thought oh, I should give the Olympics a shot. <laughs> 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 20 years later, I'm like, hmm, stayed a bit longer than I thought. Um, you know, so I started to spend some time to take up art classes and mm. pottery classes and, and I found that really scary. I, like put me in front of, of a multi-million dollar t- multi-million number TV audience and a few thousand in a stadium and I will go hard every day. Put me in an art room with eight people and a teacher and tell me to paint something. <laughs> I lock up and I freeze, even though I feel like I've got this ability of what I want to do. Yeah. The action of doing it froze me because it was so foreign. It was yeah. so it was so new. Um, so the challenges have certainly been up and down, but I'm getting there. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad to hear. It. And it's art's such a beautiful, again, it's another kind of mindfulness practice too in itself when we give ourselves permission to just create for the sake of creating isn't it and and time goes so fast you don't realize how engaged and encompassed you can be in it that gives you peace of mind you just switch mm. off for those couple of hours yeah and seeing how refreshed I feel afterwards yeah that lovely flow I think that sounds wonderful now you you just mentioned your partner Nick, Nick Flieger and he supported you through a lot of different changes in your life uh, what qualities do you think make a person someone you can turn to for that kind of mindful open support um firstly no judgment 
Mm. You know, I think it's really important to have empathy and have the ability to listen to someone as opposed to talk at them um, because I think one of the things that I found and that many people who I've spoken to struggle with is we don't often get listened to, we get spoken at. And Nick offered me the ability to just sit still and hear me out and often hearing my own words and my thought process, I'd, I'd go, gosh, what am I saying, <laughs> you know? And when that stays in my head, it's easy for that to just take hold, whereas when mm. you put voice to it and hear it coming from your own mouth, Often you can find the resolve yourself as opposed to someone who talks over you and doesn't give you that opportunity. I think someone who's like Nick and has been through his own challenges understands that it's not easy mm. and um, and it goes both ways. You know, we, we both offer to each other what mm. we each need at times. Okay. And sometimes what we each need is just to have company of someone. Yeah. You don't have to walk, <laughs> but just know that they're there. And um, And for me... He came into my life where I think I was still struggling to find love and compassion for myself and I was very conflicted with how much love and compassion he had for me because I didn't feel worthy of it. Mm. Um, so I think he gave me what I needed at the time because I just couldn't I just couldn't do it for myself until, you know, it took a little bit of time and, and it eventually got there and now we're good. <laughs> I love that. That's wonderful. I mean, on that note, what advice would you have for those who uh, you've worked with, as you shared, you've worked with clinical psychologists and sports psychologists, and, and you're very open about your experiences with challenging emotions and difficult thoughts. What advice would you have for someone who may be considering reaching out for, for support from, from a psychologist or a mental health professional? It takes great courage to reach out for support. And sometimes it takes the swallowing, swallowing of a bit of pride and ego to, to recognise or, or learn that we need help um, and to ask for help. Um, I think it's important who you go to in that regard to uh, appreciate that that person needs to have good empathy um, in approaching you and, and what what help you need. Um, so you need to have good knowledge of who it is that you're going to approach and why um, and understand that we don't do or achieve anything on our own mm. and we actually can get the best out of ourselves if we can find that vulnerability and step forward into it as opposed to walking away from it. Yeah, that's so true. Absolutely. Lastly, I'd love to ask you about what it's been like for you to become a mom. So you and Nick have a, a beautiful baby girl, Evelyn. And so that, that and, and not too long ago, you mentioned she's 13 months old now. Yeah. Has life changed dramatically for you? Is it... <laughs> <laughs> the biggest change I think that she has brought me is she slowed me down. Mm. Um, and, I, and I mean that in such a, an honest way because being a mum, it's hectic. <laughs> but I remember when she was really small, I was sitting on the couch and I was drinking from a glass of water and she was sitting on my lap and she was just looking at me in astonishment at, at what this thing I was holding was. And I'm like, what are you looking at? It's just a glass. And then, and then I'm like, oh, you've never seen a glass before. I'm like, oh, it's a glass, you know. So it's really made me even look at the things that we take for granted in such a different light. And it's made me realise that I'm no longer, even though it's important for me to look after myself for, for her sake and my family's sake, it's not about me anymore. 
you know, and it's really nice for me to put my energy into the effort of of influencing a, a, a strong, healthy, happy, empathetic young human being. And mm. um, I really look forward to who she becomes. You know, she she's thoroughly entertaining. She's this cheeky little thing. <laughs> <laughs> and even though I think being a mum has been one of the hardest roles I've ever had, the one thing that I just love is every morning waking up to to a, a face that's just so happy to be awake, just so happy to see you, and it just starts my day off so beautifully. That's so lovely, Anna. You know, one of the um, practices we have in Mind Dharma, because I'm, I'm thinking of your little girl, and she's almost like a golden moment in herself, but we have this practice where we invite people to explore, think back to a moment that has that sense of sweetness or joy, and it could be just an everyday moment, but it has that goldenness to it. Um, after everything you've experienced in your life and all the ups and downs and the perseverance, what would your golden moment or moments be mm. you know there's a lot but I think I'll go back to one of the youngest memories I have in getting my first bike yeah <laughs> the sheer joy of the bells the flowers the spoky dokes the orange flag <laughs> how excited I was that this bike brought me so much joy um, so I would say my, my biggest golden moment wasn't anything to do with my career, but maybe where my passion for it started. I love that. That's And, you know, I think every every kid who has a bike right now or, you know, any 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 other person who's listening to that, oh, I remember that feeling yes. when I got my first bike. You, it was almost like your first sense of freedom, I yes. think, perhaps. Yes. Yeah. And, and wow, what a sign of things to come for you as well. Anna Mears, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your just powerful and authentic story of resilience and perseverance and uh, we're so grateful to have had you share your story with us on Mind Dharma. My pleasure thank you so much for having me it's been been really wonderful. The Mind Dharma podcast shares stories of personal resilience and mental health. If you are impacted by any of the stories shared in the podcast please consider reaching out for support. In Australia you may choose to call Lifeline on 13 11 14. If you are living outside of Australia, please visit Befrienders.org for support services in your country. Thank you for joining us on the Mindama podcast. We invite you to discover even more with the Mindama e-learning program. Mindama is an award-winning program being used by thousands of workers as they take on some of the world's most challenging roles. Learn more about your brain. Unwind with relaxing guided mindfulness exercises and discover simple, practical skills you can use whenever the going gets tough. Find out more at mindama.com. Purchase online, or better still, ask your boss about bringing Mindama into your workplace.